Hello world, this is Stephen Francis, and you're listening to the Humble and Honest Podcast. Today's episode is with Nicole Lim. Nicole Lim is a speaker, educator, and consultant on leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. She is the founder and international director of Freely and Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping survivors and advocates to lead in ending sexual violence through their rewritten stories. With a background in photography and filmmaking, Nicole has the ability to see the world through paradox, which provides surprising insight into our world full of pain and joy, brokenness and beauty, despair and hope, suffering and love. She has an incredible new book out called Liberation is Here, which shares her story with honest introspection, capturing empowering and heart-wrenching stories that have transcended into her experience. Guys, I not only love this book, but I love this conversation with Nicole Lynn. We talk all about her work with Freely and Hope. We dive deep into her new book, Liberation is Here. And we also talk about how the church can do a better job when it comes to missionary work. Hear it all now for yourself. My conversation with Nicole Lynn. Nicole Lynn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So, Nicole, I really love what you're doing. And the reason why I connected with you is because both of us are in a conference together, 415, which is awesome. You're in the women's conference. I'm in the men's conference. Somehow through kind of looking at, oh, who's speaking? I ended up coming across your page and hearing your story. And I said, this girl has to be on the show. I think what she's doing is phenomenal. So, so glad that you could take the time to have this conversation with me. Thanks. I'm honored. Absolutely. So let's talk about who Nicole is. As great as you are, there's a lot of people that may not know who you are yet. So who is Nicole Lim and how did your organization, your ministry, Freely and Hope come about? I'm all ears. So I am a third generation Chinese American and I'm being born and raised in the Bay Area. I had access to all the things, to quality education, to a very strong and tight-knit family system and a familial support system also that encouraged me to achieve my dreams. With that, I got into photography and filmmaking because I noticed that there's a disparity of how women, particularly women of color and women from the majority world were represented and underrepresented in the media. And every time I would turn the news on, I would always see people who looked like me in complete dire situations of poverty and violence and war. And knowing from the stories of my bloodline, I knew that that wasn't their only experience. And yet somehow media only portrayed that. And so I got into filmmaking so I could show a different perspective of of what women of color could bring to the world, what stories they had, what pains and what joys and what beauty they experienced in the midst of seemingly broken situations. And when I started doing documentary work, I traveled all around the world working with different international agencies and was confronted with the reality of issues of sexual violence. And I learned that one in three women are survivors of sexual violence worldwide. I started connecting and building relationships with survivors of sexual violence who have been raped as children. And so hearing so many stories all across the world really opened my eyes to the issue of injustice. And I felt them, the survivors, kind of calling me into a larger dream than my initial singular dream of just doing what I wanted to do, but calling me into this larger dream that they had, which was to build a world that was free of sexual violence. And it seemed like 
a crazy audacious dream, but through their education, through their leadership skills, through their vision, they knew exactly what it took in order to do that. And so I decided to partner along the side of that dream and to build our organization, which is called Freely in Hope. And we exist to end the cycle of sexual violence by equipping survivors and advocates to lead in building a better world. So powerful what you're doing. And I'm in full support of it. We need more of it. This world is hurting in so many ways. I do want to talk about one quick thing, because you're a filmmaker. That's how you got into this incredible ministry, this organization. For you, what's art that inspires you? What's something that's inspired you recently? Yeah, that's a good question. But I will share that recently, I came across Alabaster, which is the new Bible company. They have reprinted books of the Bible in beautifully designed photos, beautiful text on white matte paper, you know, those kind of things that you just can like feel and you can see and envision. I just stumbled across their page and it really inspired me because I felt like, you know, this is what it means to bring about the word, literally the word into that that new wineskin. And, and I think for us to recreate some of the foundational beliefs that we have or the foundations and traditions that we have in a way that resonates with this culture is imperative for us to ensure that the gospel is moving forward in the best way. And then I have artists that I really uh, admire. Um, one of my favorite artists is uh, Kahindi Wiley. He's a Nigerian-American portrait artist, and he paints. he actually painted Obama's presidential, one of Obama's presidential photos. And he paints black and brown men in larger than life photos in the heroic poses of the Renaissance. And so he'll take these valiant photos where typically, you know, George Washington is on his stallion and he's like forging ahead. And he repaints that with Jay-Z or some other black and brown male character. And I just really love his work. He also has done some work with black women that I really appreciate because it redefines what beauty is. And also the fact that these portraits are painted that are larger than life. It kind of leverages these stories of the possibility of black and brown people being heroes and sheroes and being leaders and being in this, these beautiful and powerful and even vulnerable positions that really add to the beauty and add to the power of what they could bring to the world. Oh, that's so powerful. You know, something that you said just kind of sparked something that I heard you talk about in a previous interview. You mentioned patriarchal structures and things like that. They need to come down and 100% big advocate for that. I think that there's been some really unbiblical teachings that have been set up where men get to dominate and I don't think Christ ever called us to such a life where we're supposed to be co-laborers and oftentimes unfortunately where you can see that imbalances in church settings and in a previous interview I heard you talk about you mentioned that sometimes depending on I don't know if it's a church circle but depending on certain circles where a woman is raped or a young girl is raped she will sometimes have to apologize for being raped in front of a multitude of people. Can you fill in the gaps, what I'm missing here, and explain that type of cultural norm that exists in certain places? This was shocking to me when I heard it. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if it's a cultural norm, but it's definitely the experience of some of our girls that they've had in, in their particular church, right? And so I think this is where patriarchy loves shifting the blame away from themselves and toward women and toward minority groups and toward people who are considered less than, less statuses of power so that they can 
reclaim their own power or take hold of their power by taking someone else's power away. And so a lot of church communities in the context that we work in in Kenya and Zambia, so Kenya identified as as over 85% Christian and Zambia is over 95% Christian. So it's a very Christianized culture. And with that, there's a lot of authority and there's a lot of respect that comes with being a spiritual leader. And with that authority, I know of many pastors who have taken that authority and exerted their authority over a woman to exploit them, to rape them, to use them for their own power, their own sense of power. And so what I think is the male need to control, and especially when they're in this position of power in the church, they're revered. And then because you don't talk about sex in the church, right? Again, the survivor story would be silenced. And so because the woman has no power, no place in, in speaking up and using her voice and having a position of power and authority, that's when the patriarchy will take advantage of that from the, from the cultural aspect, take advantage of that even more so adding the religious aspect on it and requiring that women do things so that the male pastors can serve themselves. I have another story, which I actually talk about in my book, where one of our survivors had a mom who who was suffering from cancer. And so the church wanted to pray for the mom. And the pastor of the church said, okay, if if we're going to pray for this cancer to go away, then I need us to enter into a prayer and fasting night in deep in the bush in the village. So the mom was supposed to go, but because she was so ill, she sent her daughter to go to the prayer rally for her. And so she traveled hours away deep into the bush and arrived at the pastor's home. And at the home, the whole family of the pastor was there and they ate together. And the the girl was like, I thought we were praying and fasting. Why are we eating? And he said, oh, we'll start tomorrow. And she was like surprised that she would have to stay, you know, a full day to, to, to have the prayer and fasting. And then they would actually fast. So after the whole family went to bed and it was just the pastor and the girl, Then the pastor said, I hear from the Lord that if you want your mom to be healed of cancer, then you need to have sex with me. And so she was caught and she was like, I'm not going to do that. But she was out in the village with no place to go. It was already dark. It was already after dinner. And she couldn't get back without um, actually a motorbike because it's that far in the village. When she resisted, then he raped her. After that, he says, okay, now we're going to, it's like this now um, combining together the the colonized Christian spirituality together with African traditions. And he took some hair and some other cloth and he burned it. And he said, okay, now say your prayers with these burnt offerings and, and you will be clean. So she will be clean after he had raped her somehow, right? And so, so that thing burned and she cried all day, wait, begging for him to take her home because she didn't have any money to get back home. She needed a motorbike. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll take you home if you promise not to tell anyone. And so this is where that, that sense of power and control is so strong within cultures that women are, are expected to remain silent in the face of abuse. And the men, the patriarchy, and pastors will take advantage of that because they know they hold a higher authority, one for being male and two for being religious figures. That's actually really difficult to to process. And I, I really hate stories like that. When you have people that are hurt that way, when you have people dealing with not only the trauma of being sexually abused, 
But the unfortunate truth is that often the sexual abuse comes from someone that they were supposed to trust, from someone that was supposed to actually keep them safe. How, How do you wrestle giving aid to those people yet at the same time also representing the gospel to them, sharing the love of Jesus with them? Because sometimes it's so hard to separate the trauma that you had from the faith that that offender represented? Yeah, great question. So our organization is a faith-based organization. We run staff meetings in the mornings with prayer. When we have retreats together with all of our girls, they lead the church service. And how we've positioned it is is ensuring that the survivors themselves have the authority and have the option to attend prayer to participate in the church service. And that's really important because we do understand that spirituality and spiritual language could be a trigger point for them. And so we walk with them through it. What we found is that many of them can't find their own church community because they don't identify with anyone else in the church coming from extremely traditional and cultural backgrounds or the church that they knew was the church that abused them. And so they'd rather, they'd rather not, which is fine. And so what we've seen is that our community of Freeling Hope becomes its own church community. We don't meet every Sunday, but the sense of relationship and support that we provide is the church, is the gospel. The foundational theology of our organization is from Isaiah 61, which says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me, right? After that, it goes on to say that God will be the one to heal and restore and renew and a replacing of ashes for beauty, right? And so it's that replacing that we feel our community tries to offer. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen within one church service. It is years of rebuilding and loving and investing intentional time, energy, money, resources into our survivors so that they can find autonomy again through their own initiatives and through their own leadership. And we can show them um, the love of God of, of what it means to be fully restored and healed in the power of Christ's love. In addition, that healing then births leadership. And so that Isaiah 61 scripture goes on to say that they will be, they, the oppressed, will be the ones that rebuild, restore, and renew places that have been devastated by violence. And so we want them to see that trajectory over time. And so there's steps to it. There's first recognizing that the spirit resides in you to bring an end to injustice. And then second is recognizing that there is healing. There is healing available for you. And in that healing, there is a transformation. And as we transform from being hopeless to now hopeful. And as we transform from being bitter and angry and resentful into having having love again, then that's where the leadership can be birthed from. And so that's the trajectory that we hope to see within our organization, pour into them as much as we can so that they can feel that love because we feel that, you know, love transforms all. Has doing this ministry ever affected your faith negatively at all? Hearing sometimes these stories and speaking with these women or has has it fueled it? Yeah. So in my book, Liberation is Here, mm-hmm. what actually finally compelled me to write this book was from an experience of secondary post-traumatic stress disorder that had me flat out in the hospital in Zambia. And I could not move. Oh, wow. And in that time is when I did not lose my faith in terms of, is there a God? Does God exist? It's like, no, I know God exists. I've seen God come through for me and for those I love too clearly. It's, is God sovereign? How could a God, you know, the the typical question of how can a God, a loving God, right, 
allow such injustice and such violence to happen to innocents. And so it's that wrestling of that question that I ask probably every other day. And what reconciles it every other day is still the tenacity and hope that I see in the survivors in my life. I could not do that, to be honest. Like from where I am now, I cannot do that. But when I see that example of the survivors that have found that sense of hope again and have reclaimed their life and their story again and are able to lead in, in with such power and authority, then I'm like, okay, if you can do it, then maybe I can try. And so that's the hope that this work brings me. And so it's been six years since that incident happened where I was hospitalized in Zambia and PTSD, as people who've experienced know, it's not a one-time cure-all thing. You're not healed completely from PTSD, but there is a, a growth and a movement toward that healing. And I feel like I'm healing every day in community with learning from the healing of, of the survivors in our community. That's so amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I want to transition just a little bit. Another interview that you had, you spoke about something that was very important when it comes to how Freely and Hope does ministry, and that's primarily through the use of education. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you spoke about how sometimes there's great ministries or there's great organizations where they're not really providing education, they're more just giving them a skill set. So it's kind of like, oh, you know, make these beaded bracelets, make these different type of things, and those things are nice. But you believe that although that's nice, it's best if these individuals got education along with their healing so that they could be the best version of whatever it is that they would like to be. Am I getting your thought process right about this? Yeah. So I love vocational programs and I love organizations that equip women's skill sets through entrepreneurship, because I believe poverty is also another way of preventing violence. And it's also another way of getting out of cycles of abuse. So if you equip a woman with entrepreneurship skills, and she has her own financial resources, where she doesn't have to rely on her husband, who might be abusive, then that's when the woman can then regain authority in her life. So those organizations are great. At the same time, what I've what I started to see, and I, and I fell into this trap as well, where when you see only product coming from the majority world and women who look like me and women who look like my girls are making earrings, are making bracelets, are sewing blankets. When you see that narrative over and over and over again, you start to believe that that is the only thing that they can do. And so for us, we equip higher level education. So in Kenya and in Zambia, primary education is considered free. But if you want to go to high school, you have to pay tuition fees because it's privatized. Even the government schools have some type of tuition fee that you have to pay. And so we close that gap from primary to high school and fund high school education. And we also also fund university education because that is usually only reserved for the elite, for people that can afford to go to university. And so we feel if we close this gap for women who've been abused and women who live in oppressive situations, that the education piece could give them access into other professions, such as being a doctor, being a nurse, being a lawyer, being a communications person, being a, a journalist. And we have all of those in our community, by the way. And so when they start seeing themselves again in that type of light as the doctors and lawyers and journalists, then they can start moving toward building a new system that 
honors the voices and the decision-making power that girls and survivors of sexual violence have. And so we want to move out of that mindset of, oh my God, this poor girl who's been raped, she is a victim and she needs to be helped. Yes. And if you leave her in that help state, that will not be the best that she can do. And that will only serve your savior complex. So how do we then partner together so that there is an uprising of women who traditionally don't have these opportunities and resources in funding those resources so that they can go on to be the next doctors, lawyers, and, and journalists, then infiltrate the culture so that the trickle-down effect is justice and love and equity and more opportunities for women and an end to sexual violence. So dope. Hey world, I hope you're enjoying this conversation so far. I want to let you know of a couple ways that you can support the show. If you haven't already, you can subscribe, share, and leave a review for the podcast so more people get the chance to know about it. Also, you can be a contributor through Patreon. For as low as $1 a month, you can help support this show and help continue these conversations. In fact, as a thank you to all of my Patreon contributors, they are now going to be getting the unedited version of these podcast episodes. I don't know if you knew this, but these conversations that you are hearing are not the conversations in full. But if you are a Patreon contributor to the Humble and Honest podcast, you'll be able to hear the content that you're listening to right now, along with all of the funny moments and deep conversations that just didn't make the final cut check it out for yourself i'll put the link in the description for this episode but right now let's get back to this conversation with nicole Lynn. do you feel like the church and, and again I, I say church is a very general term I, I think there's a lot of churches that are doing it well but do you think the church is doing missionary work wrong? Because I do hear what you're saying. And I can think of many times where I've been on trips where it was just like, let's give them stuff and then leave when perhaps there should be something a lot more hands-on walking alongside. What would you say to that? Yeah. So I also went on all those mission trips when I was growing up and they were very formative and they were very eye-opening. What I think the disparity is, is when you go on these mission trips and you come home, the biggest realization that happens is, wow, I'm so blessed. And then what? Wow, I'm so blessed. I had this great experience with people in poverty and I'm so blessed. No, no. It's, wow, I had this great experience with people in poverty. I need to then partner with them to end their poverty and their suffering, a, a sharing of the blessings, a sharing of the privilege, if you will. That second piece is not taught in the church. And so the mission's work of going over to, like you said, give the handout is not sustainable. Even when I started Freely in Hope, I started by funding university tuition fees because I thought that that's what the girls needed, right? They told me, we want to go to the university, we want to go to high school, we want to go to school, we need school fees. Okay. I sent them the money for the school fees. Then I realized they're walking miles and miles and miles to school because they don't have money for a bus. Then I realized that their rapist is threatening their lives and is knocking on their door and trying to kidnap them. Then I realized that they can't sleep and they can't focus at school because they have PTSD. So there is a, a need for an understanding that holistic resources are imperative for this healing process. I don't believe that we can 
heal only from one element. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of Eastern medicine where we look at the root of things and we look at what is the holistic thing that the holistic piece of what we can surround ourselves with that will lead toward that healing journey. And so in the same way, if we're only coming in, dropping some school supplies, dropping some food, well, the pencils are going to are going to get short and they're going to be firewood and then the food is going to go tomorrow because they're going to share that food with the whole village. So what did you really do? Feed your your ego. That's what you did. So it's not enough. It's not enough. And I and I have a huge critique with these missions organizations because that next level of responsibility is not there and the next level of equipping and empowering the people in the communities that you're serving and listening to their solutions funding their solutions as well, that's not being done. We want to maintain the power and control by saying, okay, in order for us to give you this money, XYZ needs to happen and it has to be according to our standards. There isn't a a sitting at the table and a brainstorming and a workshopping together so that you know how do we best utilize these resources so it can so it can last and so it can be sustainable. And so that's what I hope we could see more in missions organizations and churches that are doing the important work of missions. Don't get me wrong. I a child of the missions, you know, world, which actually, you know, brought me to this work. But I believe that there is a larger responsibility that we have to not just sit in our privilege and be thankful. I think that thankfulness, that gratitude and that privilege requires us that we do something else. And it's not about us. It's about uplifting. It's about empowering. It's about funding the dreams of people who are marginalized. And in our context, that would be survivors of sexual violence. So as you're doing this mission and you're doing incredible work and lives are being changed, communities are turning around for the better, COVID-19 happens. How has that affected the liberation work that Freely and Hope has been doing? So we've been hit pretty hard by the pandemic. As you've probably heard, the pandemic has caused a surge in sexual and domestic violence cases. In our communities, not all of our girls live with in unsafe situations, but some do. And so for the some that do, we've had to relocate them to a safe house to ensure that they're not at home for longer than normal periods of time. And we were waiting to hear about the schools, right? If they would continue or if they would not. And even in America, we're still trying to figure that out. So in Kenya, they decided not to continue for the rest of the year. And so with that, and same problem here, now we have an academic disparity. Who has money and resources and access to the internet and parents who are educated that can educate their child, right? Those are the children that will succeed while those who do not have access to those same resources or a family system that can support them in their academic journey, they will not succeed as as easily. And so we've had to look at all of that, right? Because in our community, we serve folks that don't have access, whose parents don't speak English or Swahili, which are the main languages in Kenya. And so the pandemic has caused us to pivot and to do things differently. Normally, we will fund a partnering high school so that the girls can learn in that high school and it's boarding school. So they're they're living there, they're eating there, they're being educated there, they have their healthcare there, everything is there. Now, we've had to do all of that in-house. So we're essentially a temporary in-house learning institution right now where they live, they eat, and teenage girls can eat a lot. They're educated. And also because of education, we have... We have 10 tutors coming in for multiple subjects. So 
it's the funding for all of those 10 tutors. And then we also have live-in staff that ensure that they're safe and that they're being supported there. We have therapy. Um, most of the therapy is teletherapy, but in some situations, the therapist does need to come into our, our center and we'll provide that in-house. So we've had to pivot to ensure that our mission of ending sexual violence is still being achieved, even if it looks different, even if it's requiring that we spend more resources, even if it's requiring, requiring that we hire more staff. It's all worth it because right now we need to ensure that we're keeping our community safe and ending sexual violence in the ways that we can. So right now, our big push is for supporting our academic excellence efforts because we feel if you don't have the resources that are attributed to other students who have access to Wi-Fi and computers and all of that, then your movement forward and your academic grades will remain stagnant or they might see a drop. And for a lot of our girls, they've been out of school for several years. So they're already trying to catch up until the pandemic has only added more time that they'll need to catch up. And so we didn't want them to fall more behind. And we wanted to really ensure that we can utilize this time in the best way to equip their academics so that they have the chance to pursue academic excellence as well, because we believe that that's just and that's fair and they, they deserve it. And so that's where we're pummeling a lot more resources now into supporting their academic excellence right now. And we've seen good success. Um, a lot of our girls in Zambia were performing at a C level in biology and then they've gotten A's recently. So that's really, really exciting. So incredible. So incredible. I appreciate the hard work you guys are doing and I believe there's going to be, you're already seeing fruitfulness, not there will be, you already are. So your home, you're doing everything that you can in your remote location and it's, and it's a great work. And you got a book coming out at the same time. Tell me about Liberation is Here. It seems like such an incredible book. You touched on it already. What's it all about and what made you want to write it now in our culture today? So my book, Liberation is Here, captures stories of women uncovering hope in a broken world. And these are outlining the stories that have transformed me in my life of challenging me to live and love and lead and seek justice better in a violent world. And as in as much as other women's stories are woven into it, it's really about my story of transformation because kind of what I was talking about before of, of my critique of missions, it's, it's the response and the battle of responding. I think in the beginning and sometimes even now it's like, you know, what else do I do? Like there's so many, we're often overwhelmed by the injustice of all that it's paralyzing. And so how do we move beyond paralysis and into action, into collaboration, into a unity and a, and a force moving forward to see this world in the state that we want to see it in? And, and how do we bring about thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? And so the book is about how I found hope in unexpected places, how I have found healing through the stories of survivors of sexual violence, and how I have found a solution by listening to survivors and by learning from their audacious dreams. Why now is because I felt that it was necessary. When I got sick and was diagnosed with secondary PTSD, it was really hard for me to articulate what had happened then because of the PTSD that, that happens when you're triggered and traumatized. You can't articulate exactly what had happened. But as years started to go by, I, I realized that the, my experience wasn't uncommon. Burnout in ministry is being left and right. I've had so many friends who have left, who didn't make it, who started for a couple months. Even the um, statistic for businesses and many businesses don't make it past their three-year mark. And so how do we sustain both business and ministry 
social action, social justice? How do we sustain this passion that if we truly believe that God is calling us to, how do we sustain it to make sure that we can do our best, but also know that there's a lot that we can't do in this work of justice? Okay, I think that's another word for somebody out there. So that's another sermon topic, but which we can talk about later if you want. But so the why now is I know my story is not unique. I know burnout is not unique. I know PTSD and secondary PTSD in my case is not unique. And more importantly, I know that issues of sexual violence are not unique. One in three women worldwide have experienced sexual or domestic violence. And so if that's the statistic, that means one in three of our female relationships, it's actually one in six in men too, one in six of our male relationships, one in three of our female relationships, one in three of our female congregation members and our staff members could be survivors. And so if we took that in mind, I think we would approach leadership differently. I think we would design our programs differently. I think we would be a little more responsible and mindful of how we use language and our authority and our platforms to uplift stories that need to be told. And I did it for my community to ensure that the very ways that they've transformed me could bring a sense of transformation to someone else. You know, I love this quote that you have about it. Uh, you say, my vision, my vision is to equip survivors and advocates to lead, ending the cycle of sexual violence, believing that they will be the ones to bring us into liberation. In it, my hope is that the world may be transformed by them, just as I have been. I love that. I, you know, I'm sure that's just you talking about the book, but I I just feel like that's so true. I think often it's the stories of freedom that do more for us than the idea that nothing is wrong. The idea that, you know, I've never had a problem. Any problem that comes my way, it always works itself out. It's sometimes the stories of in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of burnout, in the midst of PTSD. And by the way, I mean, people are saying now, like we're dealing with the whole world with some level of PTSD because of the pandemic and the things that have transpired, the things that are still happening because of it. And I can't help but feel like, you know what, a book like this is so timely because people need to see that there is freedom. And, and like you said, it's a healing that's not instant, it's gradual, it's a journey, but it's it's possible and something that people can take advantage of. And stories like this can put them on the right road. Can you share with me one story from the book, not from the book, of someone that's found freedom that really energizes you to continue doing what you're doing? That's a longer story. Because, <laughs> okay, so the book actually captures three primary stories and weaves in three more. So there's six women's journey that you're following, because like you said, healing does not, does not happen instantly. So it's a very long and lengthy difficult, painful, but beautiful process. I would say the stories that bring me hope are the ones that are so small and so mundane, so small. And, and this is where it's so beautiful because it's these small things that build up to something even more incredible. And when I say small also, I don't mean that they're small actually because they're huge, especially for those who've experienced trauma. So one of it would be like the first time a survivor tells me their story. That's no small thing at all. But that's only the beginning. And maybe that's why I say it's small. It's only the beginning of that trajectory toward liberation and transformation that they can embark on once they first tell it 
to somebody after they tell it to someone is when they can start getting help and they receive help from the education, from the counseling, from different resources, from the safety of being in, in a community that's loving and supporting. And in taking those skill sets, then they start standing up and speaking up for themselves. They start sharing their story in context with other survivors. And then they start going to conferences with me and they start speaking on platforms to people, other people who need to hear their story. So it's these little things that build toward the next level. Then that's when you start to see that their leadership is so much more powerful than like my own because of the pain that it ex- that they've experienced. Those are those are the moments that I live for. And and sometimes it's just something like them deciding to go to therapy that day or them deciding to go for a walk that day so that they can enjoy nature, so that they can enjoy something. They decided to cook their favorite meal that day or they decided to cook me their favorite meal that day. Like these little things is what gives me the greatest joy because it builds up into that larger success of sharing it, not just with me then, with hundreds and thousands of other people. And then now through this book, it's through even more. You're so outspoken about liberation and to the point where that's literally the title of your book, Liberation is Here. But one of the things I love about you, one of the reasons why I even wanted to have a conversation with you is that it's not a compartmental issue for you. So the liberation that you're fighting for in the area of women dealing with sexual abuse, you're also very vocal about the Black Lives Matter issue. The question that I want to know, in light of just everything that's been going on and so much stuff has been politicized and stuff, do you believe maybe even bigger than Black Lives Matter that the church has a liberation issue? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, that um, a lot of times the church feels, and this is also this true for missions programs, that liberation looks like salvation. And this is where I believe liberation is a holistic experience of body, mind, and soul. And Christians got the soul part real good, and we did that back in slavery too, where it's like, okay, you can become a Christian and convert, but you cannot be freed from slavery, and here are all the laws that we will write to keep you in slavery, but you can go to your own church that's also colonized because we've paid or we've taught the preacher what to preach on that will keep you in slavery. So we do the same thing now where we will give and present a certain gospel based on building the affluence building the prestige, building the numbers of the church, rather than actually bringing about justice and liberation to those who need it most. We are so keen on going to create rallies in the majority world, congregate a bunch of people and see hands raise and people come forward and souls come to Christ. That is not the only form of liberation. Um, Earlier, I quoted Isaiah 61, where that sense of liberation, the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor, right? The good news is that there's liberation, freedom from bondage, that there is a uprising of people who've been marginalized and oppressed. There's a, a freeing and cutting of chains, right? That is liberation. And that's physical, that's emotional, that's psychological, right? And so in my work, I I want to ensure that we are providing that same sense of holistic liberation, which is why our program model is the holistic education piece. And that we're ensuring that our survivors have everything that they need to find that sense of freedom in all ways. So my last question for you, Nicole, 
How can we best support Freely in Hope? So the best way to, to support Freely in Hope is to become a Hope Circle donor. And that is our monthly donors program that funds our scholarship program to ensure that our girls can stay in school, especially during this pandemic that we've pivoted and we've added additional resources to support them through safe housing, through individualized tutoring and through therapy and through the extracurricular activities that we provide as well. Hope Circle donors ensure that their support is really surrounding, like literally encircling each of our girls so that they are fully supported. $30 a month funds counseling. $50 a month is safe housing. I don't know how much you pay for rent, but 50 bucks a month pays rent for our girls. And then $100 a month funds two weeks of individualized tutoring. So at every level that you're at, giving monthly really supports us because every month, every day, these girls are with us eating and living and learning and growing and healing in community together. And so we want to invite you into that journey as well to learn and love and to live with us in that way. And that consistent support really ensures that you're helping our girls move forward and to graduate and to not only graduate from high school, but to graduate from college. Um, there's so many levels of liberation that we hope to see within our community. And we hope that you'll join us in that process. To all of our listeners, please be sure to check out Freely and Hope. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your heart. Thank you so much for this book. And I can't wait to see what God does in your life and in this ministry. Amen. Thank you so much. Wow. What an incredible conversation with Nicole Lynn. Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to share your heart with me about these issues. And also congratulations on your phenomenal book, Liberations Here. Guys, I can't stress this enough. This book is one of my favorite books of 2020. And also, there is some great photography and artwork in there that I truly believe after you read it, you're going to want to keep it on your coffee table. She also has an incredible book launch coming on September 26th, featuring some phenomenal guests. I highly recommend you guys join it. And to be sure you don't miss a beat and also get the book, I'll put the link for all of these things in the description for this episode. Get it for yourself. But also, I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to be a part of this conversation. And I hope you will join me again soon on the next episode of the Humble and Honest Podcast.